Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In-person voting has started in a number of New England states. Four more years. He's a man of his own own word. I think so. A lot of people disagree. You vote for who you want to vote for. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about what's driving people to the polls early. And as temperatures warm, toxic cyanobacteria is increasingly polluting our water. You know, it was only knee-deep at most in the water, ever. But I felt the effects of it, I'd say within an hour, I felt like I was basically poisoned. Plus, later on in the show, author Jennifer DeLeon reflects on her time in a mostly white suburban school. I just felt like my life was divided, and yet I never fully belonged in either world. We'll talk about her life and how it intersects with her writing. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. We're starting off the show with a legal fight over taxes between two New England states. On Next, we've covered how telecommuters from New Hampshire have been upset over Massachusetts' collection of income taxes during the pandemic. Now, New Hampshire is suing the state of Massachusetts. And HPR's Todd Bookman brings us this update. When the pandemic arrived and many workers were asked to do their jobs from home, Massachusetts passed an emergency tax rule. In the past, the state had allowed residents of other states to deduct any time spent working from home from their income tax obligations. Massachusetts, though, moved to cap that policy, given all the tax revenue it would now lose out on. The rule change affects tens of thousands of New Hampshire residents who previously commuted across the southern border for work. Now, after Massachusetts announced this week that it would extend the cross-border tax collections through the end of the year, New Hampshire is responding with a federal lawsuit, saying Massachusetts is trying to pick the pockets of New Hampshire citizens. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. Now to the election. All New England voters can already vote by absentee ballot. No excuses needed. And in states like Massachusetts and Rhode Island, in-person early voting has also begun. This was the first for Rhode Island constituents. The polls opened on October 14th. And as Sophia Rudin reports for the public's radio, in the city of Cranston, 451 people showed up that day. When the city's registrar arrived at 7.30 on the first morning of early voting, there were already a few voters waiting outside. By the time he opened the doors an hour later, the line had grown by at least a dozen voters. It's nice out. It's a nice day to vote. Yeah, you gotta beat the rush. Alexander Amalfitano was near the head of the line with his wife and son, ready to cast his vote to re-elect President Donald Trump. Four more years. He's a man of his own own word. He's a, I think so. A lot of people disagree. You vote for who you want to vote for. He and many others in line said voting in person rather than by mail ballot gave them some peace of mind. I want to make sure my vote gets counted fast. 
I want to make sure my vote's counted. Get it in early. Oh, I, I didn't want to wait. I just want to make sure my vote was heard. The way they've been, you know, doing with the mail service, with the mail and bounce, I wasn't taking a chance of that. I, I, I just have to make sure my vote counts. Joe Campopiano said he came to vote early because of dueling concerns. With the Trump administration threatening cuts to the Postal Service, he's worried about the reliability of sending his ballot by mail. And he said his mother has cancer, and he's trying to avoid catching the coronavirus and potentially spreading it to her. You know, the way it's spreading and stuff like that, I just just wanted to make sure that I got here early, got my vote in, just in case something happened too with her, God forbid, with what's going on. This is the first general election where Rhode Islanders have the option to vote early and feed their ballot directly into a scanner. And according to Cranston Registrar Nick Lima, about 50 people had cast their ballots within the first 45 minutes. And we, we did it here for the primary. We had just under 1,000 people come through for the entire 20-day period. And we're expecting as many as five or six times that here over the course of the next two and a half weeks. Lima's team of eight poll workers has taken over the ground floor of City Hall, with check-in desks on one side and nine voting booths on the other. And over the past few months, he says his staff has fielded tens of thousands of calls from residents worried about how to vote. People will call us with questions about a polling place, about emergency voting, about a mail ballot process, or they didn't get their mail ballot, or they, how do I get an application, when's the deadline? Those questions come by the hundreds every single day. He predicts widespread early voting will remain a fixture in Rhode Island elections beyond the pandemic. And in a chaotic election that's been further complicated by the president's own case of COVID-19 and a last-minute Supreme Court nomination fight, some said the chance to vote early offered a sense of relief. Among them, Mary Cefaliello, who was eager to cast a vote against Trump. Get it off my head now, do it so I can relax. He's complicit in the deaths of 217,000 people. Waiting four years to vote against Trump. He's, you know, he stomps so much on so many of our values and he does it openly, which I think just deflects from the, uh, the actual corruption that's going on. Carrie Joyce said he was excited to tell others he'd voted early and encourage them to do the same. Because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, if you get it done, it's done. You don't have to worry about something coming up. Rhode Islanders can vote in person at their local board of canvassers through Election Day. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sophia Rudin. There's some key election deadlines coming up in New England. First of all, the last day to register to vote in Massachusetts, October 24th. All other New England states offer same-day registration on November 3rd. Although in Rhode Island, you're only allowed to vote in the presidential race if you didn't register before the main deadline, which has passed. In terms of absentee ballots, the regular deadline to request these has also passed in Rhode Island. You can still request your absentee ballot in all the other New England states, though some of those deadlines are coming fast. So check your Secretary of State's website for exact info and go to your local NPR station's website for their resources. Most states are recommending you get your absentee ballot in the mail as soon as possible. There are also options for in-person delivery and official drop box sites. 
This election is extremely contentious for many New Englanders, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. As November 3rd gets closer, how are you feeling about the election? Are you excited? Anxious? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. Or you can email us at next at ctpublic.org. I'll say that one more time. It's next at ctpublic.org. Roughly 32 million Latinos will be eligible to vote in November. That's according to the Pew Research Center. Connecticut has more than half a million Latinos. For some of them, voting in the U.S. is a new and different experience. As Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon reports, the key is voter engagement and local in-person assistance centers. Pablo Liriano is an 85-year-old urban gardener who is voting for the first time in November's election. Soy Dominicano. I am Dominican, and today I am American. I come from the Dominican Republic, and I thank God first that they opened the doors for me in this country. I came legally on July 10, 1999, and have been here for almost 22 years. After waiting more than a decade, he got his citizenship in 2018. Then, he registered to vote at Hartford's Park Street Library, located in Frog Hollow the heart of the city's Latino community. I just happen to say that I want to vote and I want to register. Graciela Rivera is a librarian at Hartford Public Library's Park Street branch, which is doing outreach to register more people to vote. Sometimes, as, as a Latina myself, right, we, we don't um, think about how important it is to make sure your voice counts because at times we don't feel like our voice matters. Rivera also grew up in Frog Hollow and knows the neighborhood well. So I would come to the library, work on homework, use the computer and things like that because I didn't have those resources at home. And the pandemic only exacerbated the need for more resources. Voting is only one of many variables. You know, having to worry about what, I'm, what my kids are going to eat every day might be a, it's, is a bigger priority than going out to register to vote. So dealing with those things, right, basic necessities that we, that people in the community have to go out and find in order to meet the needs of their family. So that alone, you know, will change our priorities. With Black and Latino communities being hit the hardest by the pandemic, Rivera says that outreach might change in order to meet people where they are. So completing a census or registering a vote is not at the top of your list when you're going through those things. So um, something to definitely think about. And, you know, we, we sympathize with that. In order to work around these roadblocks, Rivera built connections prior to the pandemic through women empowerment groups and community gardens. Numbers indicate that there are more Latinos who are eligible to vote, but political science professor at the University of Connecticut, Charles Venator Santiago, says the challenge has been registering these potential voters. So even though there's a high possibility that Latinos are going to participate in Puerto Ricans in particular uh, because they're citizens, the conditions are also making it really hard for Puerto Ricans and Latinos to participate because of the economic crisis. While potential voters can register online and request absentee ballots, Benator Santiago says that is a challenge for families who have temporary addresses or who may not have access to digital tools. You, you need a physical place that has either digital access or some sort of access. 
for people, and the, uh, Latinos in particular. Sandra Rivera met Graciela Rivera through that Women's Empowerment Group. She arrived from Puerto Rico in 1992 and has been living in Hartford ever since. Unlike Pablo Liriano, who had to wait 15 years for the right to vote, Sandra has been voting since she arrived from the island. I now exercise my right to vote here in the United States because it's very important to vote. The difference from Puerto Rico is that there you get the day off so everyone can go vote. As an unincorporated territory of the United States, roughly 3 million Puerto Ricans living on the island will not have an electoral vote in the presidential election. In Sandra Rivera's case, as a citizen of the United States and a resident of Hartford, she can exercise her right to vote by mail. Sometimes people may have disabilities, or maybe they can't write, or they can't read. And I tell them that as long as I'm here, I can help to interpret, and from what I understand, I can help them. While the mechanics of voting in the U.S. differ from other countries, there are other things that set it apart. Pablo Liriano remembers his time in the Dominican Republic when fraud and gunfire were part of the process. But he also said that voting there is far more festive. Political parties and their supporters drive through the island in caravans, encouraging voters to participate. Now, Liriano finds himself in a different electoral system. And it took time. He was able to apply for citizenship because he was both over 55 and had been in this country for at least 15 years. After almost 17 years with his family in New York City, Liriano moved to Hartford three years ago. Yo quería, el anhelo mío era venir a, a este gran país americano para gozar el gran privilegio que ustedes tienen aquí. My desire was to come to this great country, America, to enjoy the great privilege you all have here. And I thank this country because it has had the freedom that man deserves here. It's a country that everybody wants to come to. Because he says Hartford is his new home, and this is where he'll vote. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. Coming up. Toxic pollutants called cyanobacteria are increasingly in New England waters as temperatures warm. We'll hear how one man got gravely ill on Cape Cod after his presumed exposure. Plus, we'll talk about how this bacteria is affecting drinking water in Vermont. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, Supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. This summer, a local carpenter went out crabbing in Chilmark Pond on Martha's Vineyard. Within three hours, he felt seriously ill. CAI's Eve Zukoff reports on the toxic dangers lurking in local waters. In early August, 48-year-old Michael Forgione told his mother that he was heading out to go crabbing in the brackish waters of Chilmark Pond. Carol Forgione, a nurse practitioner, wished him a good catch. This is the pond. This is the entrance that he went into. And then the public entrance is just down the road. Michael has since left the island, so he explained what happened next over the phone. It was only knee-deep at most in the water, ever, so it's not like it's that much water. But I felt the effects of it, I'd say within an hour of being out there. Michael said he grew so tired, he lay down in a dinghy to take a nap. 
And then I woke up and I maybe spent another hour. And then I just basically tried to get myself out of there. But I was probably lost for an hour and a half. I was just, yeah, it really screwed me up. And I drove home and then I was on the porch of my mother's house. And she came out and woke me up to go downstairs. And I like, I couldn't walk. By that time, I think it was lucky he managed to get home because he was so not himself right after that. Michael. At 6'5 and 210 pounds, was irritable, with swollen hands, feet, and lower legs. He accepted Benadryl and a glass of water, but insisted his mother leave him alone on the front porch. So twice she went to bed, and twice she came back out to find him drifting in and out of consciousness. And he was on the ground, like on here, and slumped over again. I woke him back up, and... He was even more agitated, more confused. And I said, here, let me help you get up. Look at your feet. They're like crumpled. They're literally crumpled. You know, I felt like I was basically poisoned. And then what? a couple days later, we saw that article. It was a letter to the editor talking about the algae bloom in the Chilmark Pond. And this toxin can be excreted. And he and I looked at each other and said, oh, my God, that's what happened. Months later, Michael Forgione is still experiencing numbness and neurological symptoms. He appears to be the first known victim of a toxic cyanobacteria bloom in New England, but it's unlikely he'll be the last. These blooms appear to be a growing threat in the more than 1,000 ponds across the Cape and Islands and countless more throughout the Northeast. Right now, all that prevents another person from getting sick is a patchwork quilt of monitoring systems that vary state by state and even town by town. So cyanobacteria are a naturally occurring part of a healthy aquatic ecosystem. And without intervention from human influences, they're largely not a problem. This is Andrew Gottlieb, executive director of the Association to Preserve Cape Cod. It's a private nonprofit group that monitors cyanobacteria blooms for three of the 15 towns on the Cape. They also monitor ponds for private neighborhood associations that pay for the service. Gottlieb says cyanobacteria blooms are fueled by nitrogen and phosphorus, which are abundant on Cape Cod. Lawn fertilizers and backyard septic systems allow these nutrients to seep through the groundwater and into ponds. Mix that with increasing water temperatures because of climate change, and you create the perfect growing environment for cyanobacteria blooms. So we're taking a a species of algae that likes nutrient-rich waters that are warm, and we're providing both of those stimulus to them. A cyanobacteria bloom often makes the water look like pea soup, a dense, bright green. And sometimes as the blooms break down, they release toxins, exposure to which has been known to sicken humans, like Michael Forgione, and kill dogs, birds, and fish. To Gottlieb, this is a potential public health disaster. Much as you have an expectation that when you turn the tap on, that no matter what town you're in, you're obtaining water that is of the same minimum quality standards. The same thing ought to be true in terms of your degree of confidence that the safety of the water that you're swimming in or recreating on or taking your kids or dogs to is uniform across the Commonwealth. Right now, no New England state requires towns to monitor for cyanobacteria blooms. In fact, no state in the region has a comprehensive monitoring program for at-risk ponds. What's clear just about everywhere is that more and more cyanobacteria blooms are showing up in ponds. 
And as temperatures rise, experts have no idea where the danger will appear or who could be harmed next. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Eve Zukoff. That story is part of a series from CAI on toxic cyanobacteria blooms invading ponds in the Cape and Islands. Next week, solving these problems, what it will take to prevent a health and environmental crisis. To give you a sense of the regional impact of toxic cyanobacteria blooms in New England, we go to Vermont. VPR's John Dillon has covered these algal blooms in Lake Champlain, where about 200,000 people get their drinking water. John, in the story we just heard, toxic blooms are primarily polluting waters on Cape Cod through septic systems. What's the main cause on Lake Champlain in Vermont? The main cause and the thing that feeds these blooms is excess nutrients. And here in Vermont, it's phosphorus. And it essentially acts like, you know, crack for the cyanobacteria, and it causes these blooms under the right conditions. Many sources in Vermont and and in the Lake Champlain watershed where it's a concern But the main source, 41%, they figure, is from agriculture, which includes runoff from cropland, you know, the fertilizer that's put on those fields, and manure, which is spread on fields for fertilizer and and sometimes runs off into streams and then into the lake. And what was the impact of this toxic pollution on Vermonters this year? Well, we had a record number of beach closings in the city of Burlington, which is right on Lake Champlain, and there were 44 times this summer that they had to close a beach because of a bloom, and that compares to 11 times last year. So it was a big impact on recreation, you know, hot weather, you remember how hot it was, and people just couldn't go in the water. So that was that was big. And then there's some 22 water systems in Vermont that get their drinking water from the lake. They sample, and one system found toxins at three times the state advisory level. Did anyone get sick uh, like the man we heard about in Eve's story? Not that we know of. There were dogs that died a number of years ago, both from lake water exposure and um, getting in water in a smaller pond. No human illnesses that were reported that I'm aware of, but these things could easily be unreported because... There's no state or federal standards for cyanotoxins under either the Safe Drinking Water Act or the Clean Water Act. There's health advisories issued by the feds, by the EPA, and by the state of Vermont, but the monitoring is somewhat inconsistent, and there's no real central database or or other registry for illnesses from possible exposure. And I talked to James Ellers. He's a policy advisor with an environmental group called Lake Champlain International about this. And he says, anecdotally, people have told him uh, after swimming or being around the lake, they've they've reported diarrhea, uh, stomach upsets, other conditions that all could be related from exposure. But he says the state agencies aren't looking hard enough for any links between the water and possible routes of exposure and these illnesses. I have images of people who, after having gone swimming, they have boils all over their skin. That doesn't sound good. It, it doesn't. And the the illnesses, you know, range from things like skin rashes, but all the way up to, you know, liver poisoning. So it's a serious thing. And not only from being in the water, but there's evidence that these toxins can aerosolize. They can, you can breathe them in places where there's really big blooms. 
So there's there's other routes of, of exposure that people are concerned about. There's one other thing uh, I want to talk about in terms of illness. For years, medical researchers have been investigating whether there are potential links between toxic cyanobacteria exposure and an increased risk of developing ALS, which some people know as Lou Gehrig's disease. Why do researchers suspect this connection? Well, this is fascinating research with some really interesting links to our region. There's a guy in Dartmouth at Dartmouth, Elijah Stommel. He's a physician and neurologist who's been looking at, at these links between a particular cyanotoxin called BMAA and the incidence of ALS in people who are genetically susceptible to the disease. And he's published research on this that suggests clusters of ALS in certain areas, including Lake Muscoma in New Hampshire. And that's why he, he's looking to make ALS a reportable disease in many states. It's only reportable, I believe, in New York State. So we can know how many cases there are and where. That was John Dillon, senior reporter at Vermont Public Radio. Last month, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency wrapped up a public comment period on its controversial plan to remove toxic PCBs from the Housatonic River. The agency says it hopes to issue its final plan before the end of the year. As New England Public Media's Nancy Cohen reports, that would be before any possible changes at the White House. It can take a long time to figure out how to clean up a river, throw in two states, five towns, environmentalists with different perspectives, a federal agency bound by laws and red tape, a polluter with lots of lawyers, toxic waste that needs to be put somewhere, and it can take decades. In the case of the Housatonic, it has, 20 years and counting. But now things may be moving forward. I'm sincere on that. That's Roger Martella of General Electric speaking in February at the announcement of a mediated cleanup agreement. He promised the company would start the design immediately. This is a far better alternative to more years of protracted litigation, which would delay the cleanup and extend the uncertainty. But some want more time so the public can influence the cleanup permit, which is slated to include a low-level toxic waste disposal site in the Berkshires, saving GE the cost of shipping it out of state. Tim Gray of the Housatonic River Initiative says the EPA is trying to finish the cleanup plan with lightning speed. They want to make sure that this very weak permit against General Electric gets through for the company before the administrations might change. It doesn't seem that fast to me. You know, it's been going on for years. That's Jim Murphy, a retired New England EPA staffer who worked for 13 years on the GE Housatonic site. Murphy says a new administration wouldn't change the outcome. He experienced a change in administrations three times under Presidents Clinton, George W. Bush, Obama, and Trump. No matter who is, you know, victorious in this upcoming election, I don't see a whole lot of changes as far as how the GE project would proceed one one way or the other. So obviously the election is is going to be significant, but the trickle down to a, a specific site is really not visible. And the Housatonic cleanup issue isn't really a partisan one. Top Democrats, including Senator Ed Markey, praised the deal. 
Tim Whitehouse also used to work at the EPA as a senior attorney enforcing clean water and hazardous waste laws. Today, he directs the nonprofit Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, a group that protects whistleblowers who work for environmental agencies. Federal agencies always work to finalize their permits and regulations and policy objectives of the administration before they leave office and before an election. So that's the normal course of business. White House says that was true when he was at the EPA during two transitions, including from Presidents Clinton to Bush, a transition he called smooth and amicable. But he says things have changed under President Trump. What's different about this administration is the complete abruptness and hostility that this administration has toward environmental regulations and toward regulations that protect public health. Tim Whitehouse says the agency is trying to finalize as many hazardous waste cleanups as possible. He points to goals set by Trump's first EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, who set up a task force in 2017 which recommended expediting cleanups. Whitehouse says now, under Trump's second EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, the agency is promoting the number of cleanups it checks off the list. So that EPA can claim progress in terms of cleaning up hazardous waste sites. But he says he's not hearing that specifically about the GE Housatonic River site. Kyla Bennett, who also works for PEER and who worked for EPA New England for a decade, says the agency's career employees try to do the right thing and use the laws to protect the environment and residents. She says staffers in New England and the Pacific Southwest, which includes California, are among those who push back the hardest. Regions 1 and 9 probably are the most environmentally protective regions. They're known by headquarters. They always have been as the regions that push the envelope. If there is a change at the White House, it's likely the EPA's New England region would get a new acting administrator. So if the Housatonic cleanup is not finalized by then, it could sit unresolved for months more. Some living near the river say getting rid of the PCB dump, even if it takes more time, is their priority. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. When the coronavirus hit, a number of New England states temporarily banned evictions to protect tenants who lost work and were unable to pay rent. Massachusetts lifted its ban this month. But before that, an investigation from WBUR found that landlords were taking matters into their own hands, threatening tenants, badgering them to pay or leave, and even calling law enforcement. WBUR's Simone Rios brings us the story from Lynn, Massachusetts. This summer, when the pipes burst in the triple-decker apartment where Rovelio Gonzalez lives, it destroyed his bedroom furniture. And then it happened again. That wasn't the only problem he and his family faced. Cockroaches invaded the apartment, and the family couldn't sleep because of a bed bug infestation. So Gonzalez started withholding the rent in July. Entonces, ahí empezó este problema, que hablamos con él. That's when the problem with the landlord started, he says. We wanted him to pay for our bed and fix the pipes, and he said, no, you're out of here in two weeks. Either you leave or I'll call immigration on you. Housing experts say the landlord's actions, as recounted by Gonzalez, are illegal. One, he gave the family a two-week notice to quit the apartment in late August. 
That was banned under the moratorium. Two, the notice appeared to be in retaliation for Gonzalez withholding rent. And three, in Massachusetts, it's illegal to threaten to call immigration on someone for asserting their rights. Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy says immigrants are particularly vulnerable. We hear about landlords threatening to change the locks on people, reporting tenants to ICE, um, threatening to evict people following a positive COVID test. Healy's office has received more than 200 complaints regarding violations of the moratorium. WBUR interviewed tenants in Lynn, Chelsea, East Boston, and Framingham. We found a woman whose landlord reported her to the police for trespassing, another landlord who changed the locks on his tenant, and a man so badgered to move after losing his job at a fish plant that he decided to leave rather than fight the landlord. A Lynn resident named Mercedes has been fighting cancer for years, and she lost her job because of the pandemic. We're using her first name only because she fears retaliation by her landlord, who's been pressuring her to get out because she can't pay the rent. Mercedes says her landlord has been sending texts demanding money and making her feel like her every move is being scrutinized. Her biggest problem now isn't her stage four cancer, she says. It's having a place to live. The moratorium started in April and ended this month. As many as 60,000 Massachusetts renters could be in danger of imminent evictions, according to the Census Bureau. A WBUR analysis of pending evictions in the Boston area found poorer parts of Roxbury, Dorchester, Revere, and Chelsea could be among the hardest hit now that the moratorium has ended. But the tenants in this story are not in any official count of pending evictions. A federal eviction ban will continue through December, but it offers less protections to tenants like Rovelio Gonzalez of Lynn. On the morning of October 5th, ICE agents appeared at Gonzalez's apartment and shackled him outside. Dozens of activists came to the scene demanding that he be released. Isaac Simon Hodes was one of the first to arrive. Um, so as far as we know, ICE um, arrested this man outside of his home. They've got him locked in a truck right now, with uh, unmarked, with no plate in the front. Sitting on the and steps in front of the house was the 13-year-old daughter of Gonzalez's partner. She's here with us. She's in tears. She's extremely distraught. ICE eventually released Gonzalez in front of the crowd. Less than an hour later, his landlord, Shi Ling Wang, appeared at the house. I asked him about his tenant. Yeah, Did you yeah, call yeah. ICE on no, the no, tenant? No, 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 Because the ICE, we lock, we lock, we lock here, you know. Yeah. Because your, your tenant said he threat, that you threatened to call ICE. And then ICE came and, no, you did not. No, no, no. I'm busy enough. <laughs> Gonzalez says getting detained by ICE is a trauma that he wouldn't wish on anybody. Sí, me enojé porque de verdad mi mente pasó muchas cosas que pensando que él había sido. Gonzalez says he doesn't know for sure if it was his landlord who called ICE, but he's angry the landlord threatened to do so. I'm not hurting anyone, he says. All I did was stand up for my rights as a tenant. Now Gonzalez is on the radar of immigration authorities. And like so many Massachusetts renters trying to stay above water during this pandemic, he worries about where his family will live. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simon Rios. WBUR's senior investigative reporter Beth Healy contributed to that story. After the break, Jennifer DeLeon. Her newly released novel is about a young Latina in Boston 
who's transferred to a mostly white suburban school through a school desegregation program. We'll talk about how the author and her character share this journey of finding their place in a world that feels split. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. This is Next. I'm Morgan Springer. Our final guest is Jennifer DeLeon. She's an author and assistant professor of creative writing at Framingham State University in Massachusetts. Jen has a book of personal essays coming out in the spring called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. But first, we'll talk about her debut novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, which came out this year. In the book, Liliana Cruz of Boston has just been selected for a school desegregation program. At dawn, she takes the bus to a mostly white high school in the suburbs. Jennifer DeLeon, welcome to Next. Thank you so much for having me. So much happens in Liliana Cruz's life after she starts going to school in the suburbs. She's, you know, finding her place and her voice in this new school. I think the title of the book really encapsulates the tension that exists for her as a Latinx girl in a mostly white space. And hopefully our listeners understand why the question, where are you from, can be uh, problematic and frustrating. But I'm wondering if you could talk about what this particular framing of don't ask me where I'm from means for Liliana. Right. Yeah, it's not that it's, in my view, it's not that it's a bad question so much as the way in which it's asked. So if someone's asking you, where are you from? And you choose to say, Framingham. And then they say, where are you really from? Or where are you from from? You know, it's implying that you can't be from Framingham or that you are from some other place. And sometimes the tone even imparts that you are different and that different is bad. So I think a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants, um, a lot of people who have been on the receiving end of this question understand that it it can be problematic, um, but it, it doesn't need to be. You know, I think we all benefit from learning about each other's backgrounds. And, and the thing is, everyone is from somewhere. Um, so it's just a matter of how it's framed. Your parents immigrated to Boston from Guatemala, and you spent time growing up partially in Boston and then partially in the suburbs. Can you talk about what your childhood was like? Yes. So I was born in Boston. And when I was two, our family moved to a suburb. And we went to school there. We grew up there. We had friends there. We did Girl Scouts. We went to church. You know, we did ice skating, all of the the things that my parents kind of associated with the suburbs. But I think what they hadn't planned on or maybe thought about too much was the fact that my sisters and I were really one of very few families of color in the town. And especially in school, uh, everybody was white. You know, all my friends, all my teachers, all the soccer coaches. And so I had that experience during the week. And then every weekend we would go to Boston to visit my grandmother and my aunts and uncles and cousins. And so in that way, I was constantly moving between two worlds And much like Liliana, um, I just felt like my life was divided, and yet I never fully belonged in either world. 
Did you feel like you were able to find a point where it didn't feel as divided or was that not the important thing? It was more to notice and exist in in the world as you wanted to. Mm. It wasn't really until middle school, um, high school, where I started to realize the different social groups and Framingham started to get, you know, more diverse. And I felt that push and pull where I felt like even in the, in the cafeteria, like, where do I sit? Do I sit with my white friends, my Jewish friends, or do I sit at the table with black and brown students, you know, with my friend Hazel, who is Puerto Rican, my friend Tanisha, who's black, you know, it just was like, where do I go? Where do I belong? And in high school, there was a group for Latina students, and we were doing, um, you know, college preparation activities and all of that. And and that's where I felt actually like, oh, my worlds are are kind of coming together in this way. Yeah, I mean... Liliana is a character that you wrote, and I think it's hard not to wonder how much of you is in this character. Does she feel connected to you? I think so, yeah. she. Um, Liliana's parents are undocumented in the book, and I didn't have that experience. You know, my parents became citizens before my sisters and I were born, but they do share similarities with Liliana's parents in that you know, they're very tied to their home countries and they really value education and pushed education on us more than anything, I'd say. So I, I tried to infuse that in Liliana's parents and their characters and kind of debunk this maybe stereotype or, or myth that Latinx parents aren't involved in their kids' education or they don't go to the meetings or they're kind of passive and really provide a, a kind of counter-narrative to to what we consume in the news. One of the things I love about this book is that you seem to really capture Liliana's teenage voice so well. And I'm wondering if you can read a passage from the book on page 179. And I'm just going to set this up a little. This is a conversation Liliana's having with her best friend, Jade, who's also Latinx and grew up next door. Um, And in this scene, Liliana's been at her new school for a little while now through what's called METCO, that's the desegregation program. And they're talking about the fact that Jade has told her boyfriend, Ernesto, that Liliana's father has been deported. And Jade's the first one who talks. Don't even be like that, Liliana. She lit right in. Ernesto and me, we're good, happy. So I share stuff with him. But you seem to have a major problem with that based on your little Mecco whatever program and your white school attitude you got going on. What? Whoa, hold on a minute. This is not about me. You told him about my father, Jade. Really? She stepped closer. See what I mean? See what? That. That right there. You have such a stank-ass attitude. You're all sarcastic. Is that what your new best friend Heather or Holly or whatever her name is talks like? I narrowed my eyes. Oh, so that's what this is about. Thank you for reading that. Now, in terms of Liliana's father and the fact that he's deported, throughout the book, Liliana is missing him, and and I would say idolizing him. So I'm wondering about your relationship with your own parents. You have dedicated this book to your mother for believing in you. 
Yeah, definitely. My mother is, oh my gosh, she's my biggest cheerleader. I mean, I, I, I could say so much about her. I've written a lot about her and her story of coming to the United States at the age of 18 and really kind of having to find her own way. You know, she didn't speak English. She was the only one in her family here for years. And so just knowing her story and that I'm every positive thing I experience is because of her sacrifice. It really fuels me. You know, it's like the gas in my tank. There's maybe this tension between believing and and pressure. You write in a personal essay that will be part of your forthcoming book of essays called White Space, Essays on Culture, Race, and Writing. You write that your mother will pepper you with questions like, how much do you get paid for writing a book? How long does mm-hmm. it take? What page are you on now? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she uh, wants to know, I think, that last question, you know, what page are you on now? I think she wants to cheer me on and say, like, you're almost there. But she's come a long way and she's learned a lot. Her questions are different now, I should say. Yeah. I mentioned uh, this collection of personal essays, White Space. You know, it strikes me that it's a vulnerable thing to do, definitely different than sharing fiction with readers. And I wanted to read briefly things you wrote in an essay about helping your father with his resume. Um, You say... I wonder what he thinks about the fact that his primary duty each day is to make a pot of rice for dinner. And and you write that this comes after he had worked for many years, but stopped because he had cancer. Um, You also write about your mother. You say, her role as my father's caretaker has made her eager to leave the house, even if she won't admit it. Mm -hmm. And so my question is, how does this work with your parents? Like, do you ask permission to write this? Um, are you nervous about them reading it? And, and what's that kind of negotiation as a writer and a daughter? Yeah, definitely. That's a great question. I mean, I wrote in my journal since eighth grade. So I've written about them for years. But once I started writing about them in essays and in ways that I felt like, oh, I want this to have a wider audience and maybe be published... Then I did ask, like, hmm, how would they feel about this if I write this? But to be honest, like, the question would enter my mind and then it would just kind of, like, keep on moving. And it's not that I didn't care, like, what are they going to think about this? It's more that I really feel like in order to write truthfully and vulnerably, you have to go 100% because the reader will feel it. And the essay just, it won't click. And I'm grateful in a way that they don't read the literary magazines where I publish (laughs) um, a lot of the essays. But I have shared pieces with them. And, you know, I think that they they feel proud. Like, oh, that's me. Or my mom will laugh. Like, I didn't do that. And I'm like, yeah, you did. (laughs) And, um, you know, like moments like that, I think they're happy to have our experiences and their roles crystallized in this way, like written on the page. It's kind of like bearing witness in ways that we have never had in our family. I mean, we barely have pictures from their childhood, from my childhood. There's a horrible story uh, or incident that happens where I 
took most of all the pictures of me as a child and put them in one photo album because I was 13 and we were going to LA to have a family reunion. And I was like right in that prime, like, you know, teenage narcissistic like age where I'm like, I'm going to make a photo album of just me. And I took all these pictures, put them in this album. We went to LA and had a great family reunion, passed the photo album around all week. And then on our way to the airport, we stopped at a souvenir shop. And while we were in the shop, people robbed the truck with all of our luggage, all of our suitcases, oh including, yeah, including my photo album. And I really think that instilled in me in, in some subconscious way, like I have to find a way to to reclaim those images and those stories that were lost. So I love writing nonfiction. I'm grateful. This is kind of the first time I'm talking about the essay collection and it's been a long time coming. You know, I've written these pieces over the last 10 years plus and to be able to have it in one book is just so thrilling and I can't I can't wait. Is it also nerve-wracking? Yes. <laughs> because totally nerve-wracking. I mean, the essays are personal. They're vulnerable. Um I share Oh my gosh, about relationships. I write about body image and my struggles with body image and and whiteness and my journey toward becoming a writer and how I really struggled with whether or not my stories had value and my voice mattered. So yeah, it's super vulnerable, but I, I feel like here we are and I just want to maybe offer... A, these up to other readers who might feel like they can connect in some way. You know, I know lots of writers say that, but it is true that when you feel yourself reflected on the page, it just does so much. It can. That was author Jennifer DeLeon. We've been talking about her forthcoming collection of personal essays, White Space, essays on culture, race, and writing, and her debut novel, Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, which came out this year. And that's our show this week. You can listen to Next anytime at our website, that's nextnewengland.org, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.